for 72 hours, which ends on uh, Monday morning. So I missed the picnic and I missed care group and I'm missing church, but I'm actually watching myself because this is a recording and uh, I'll be on Zoom on Sunday morning. And uh, also I uh, hope to uh, be at the meeting right after the, the service as well. Well, this morning, I uh, would like you to open your Bibles to the last 25% of the book of Revelation. Just about three quarters of the way through this book. And soon we are going to reach the Lord's second coming in chapter 19. After that, of course, uh, we come to a period of time uh, that I've looked forward to for most of my Christian life. The millennium. It's a thousand years of time when this earth will be completely changed. The Lord will be reigning and it's all going to be ours in Christ. But before we get there, we need to go through one of the most significant events that will happen in the future. It is so significant that out of 22 chapters in Revelation, this takes up two of them or 42 verses, which is more verses than you'll find in the entire story of the creation of the universe. So this is clearly not something that the Lord wants us to quickly pass over, but we need to slow down on our way to the second coming and give some detailed attention to this subject. I'm going to read the first of these two chapters, chapter 17, and this will set us up for today and also for several future messages that we'll have on this topic. So chapter 17, it's not going to be on the PowerPoint, so follow along in your Bibles as I read. Verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me. And uh, remember that these are the angels who uh, have poured out the seven last plagues on the earth at the end of the tribulation. So it's one of those angels came saying to me, that's to John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. The angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of Lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. 
for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are finished. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, if someone asked you what the subject of that chapter is, and also really of the next chapter, what would you say? Well, it's really quite simple because verse 1 announces it. The angel tells John that he's going to show him, and now here's the subject, the judgment of the great harlot, an entity that is also referred to in these chapters as Babylon the Great. Now, the first reference to her judgment is found really as far back as chapter 14, verse 8, and then again in chapter 16, verse 19. Now in chapters 17 to 18, we have this full account of what God intends to do when he judges the great harlot, Babylon the Great. So first of all, as we approach this, I want to point out that verses 1 to 2 are the introductory verses to this because they give us just a little insight into three things about Babylon the Great. Let's just note them for a moment. Whenever Babylon the Great is, she's characterized in verse 1 as a what? She's characterized as a harlot. We're dealing with a woman, but not a clean one. She isn't even one that engages in adultery. She is the kind of woman who solicits payment for sex. She's characterized as a harlot or a prostitute. Secondly, Babylon the Great is located for us at the end of verse 1. All right, she's characterized as a great harlot or a woman for hire. And in location, she sits on many waters. And then the third thing we are told by way of introduction is in verse 2, where she is related to the world community. First of all, to its civil heads or the kings of the earth. And secondly, to all of the common people who inhabit the earth. In both cases, her relationship to them is one of immorality, verse 2. In other words, all of her connections are immoral and unclean. Now, I just want to point out that this is a thread that runs right through these two chapters. Her immorality is mentioned again in verse 4. It's called the mother of harlots in verse 5. It's called a harlot again in verse 15 and a harlot in verse 16. We move into chapter 18, uh, verse 3 refers to her immorality, also to her sensuality. In verse 7, she is said to have lived sensuously. The word is translated uh, in uh, the New King James Version as luxuriously, but it's the word for sensuality. In verse 9, she has lived immorally and in sensuality. So this is her connection to the world community, to the inhabitants of earth and to the rulers. Now, those three things are initially introduced by this angel, and then he's going to go on and show John something about it, and then explain it to him. And maybe you noticed that division when I read through the chapter. In verse 3, it says, he carried me away in the spirit, and I saw. In verse 6, I saw. Finally, in verse 7, I'll tell you about this mystery. And that's what he does from there. So if you're outlining this chapter, those first two verses are an introduction to this great subject of the judgment of Babylon the Great. Then in verses 3 to 6, John sees this entity, and in verses 7 and following, she is explained or interpreted. So that's the direction, that's the outline that we are going to take for today. So we've already done the first point of introduction, but let's begin our study Uh, more fully in this subject. And it's a subject that heaven sings about in chapter 14. Heaven sings about the final judgment of whatever this thing is. And we'll see later on that there are lots of opinions about that. In fact, uh, I dare say that uh, many of you have your own pet view. So prepare to defend yourself and your view, because today we will find out which of the popular views really stand up to what the scripture actually says. And I say that not just because we want to satisfy our curiosity, but again, we need to accept the fact that God intends for his people to take a long look, 42 verses worth, at not only Babylon the Great, a woman for hire, 
located on many waters and characterized in all of our connections with the people on earth as immoral and unclean. But he intends for us to understand this so that just like the original readers are admonished in chapter 18, we are also called to come out of her. And that really is, I think, the message for us. Let's begin with a close look at verses three to six and what John sees in those verses. And my main point will be to contrast what is the divine viewpoint with our own human viewpoint. In other words, uh, what we're going to look at here is what people just evidently uh, do not see on their own. So let me first of all show you what people do see when they viewed Babylon the Great. And at this point, uh, you need to look into chapter 18. Look at verses 12 to 13, because when you see Babylon the Great, this is what you see, verse 12, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and bodies and souls of men or slaves. Or, for example, look at verse 16. This is what people see, a great city clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Look at verse 22. In this city, you see the sound of fine arts, the sound of harpists, and musicians, and flutists, and trumpeters, and it talks about craftsmen of any craft, and the sound of a millstone. It's talking about manufacturers. That's human viewpoint. And I know that because in chapter 18, all of these descriptions are basically in terms of the merchants of the earth and the wealthy people and the dwellers on earth who are just bemoaning the loss of all of that when God judges Babylon the Great. That's all they see. But when God looks at all that splendor and cargo and music, and he watches those craftsmen work their trade and sees the buying and selling and the manufacturing, his viewpoint is found back in chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. In verse 3, first of all, it says that this woman has an associate, the scarlet beast she is riding. Verse 3 says she is sitting on a scarlet beast full of names of blasphemy. So that's what God sees. He sees that association. Number two, from divine viewpoint, her appearance in verse 4 can be characterized as purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And I just want to note that this is the exact opposite of what God prescribes for Christian women in 1 Peter 3.3 and for the bride of the Lamb in Revelation 19.8. When the bride of Jesus Christ adorns herself, it is described in Revelation 19, verse 8, as fine linen, clean and bright. There's a beautiful simplicity to that. But this woman's appearance, by contrast, looks gilded. And I use that word because the word translated as adorned in verse 4 is literally the term gilded. She is gilded with gold, something that captures your attention the most. But then, this is also what God sees. He sees this cup of gold at the end of verse 4. Having, it says, having in her hand a golden cup. Now, that might seem to be some kind of honor, Except that when God allows John to peer into that cup, he sees that its contents are filthy and degrading, and it actually contaminates everyone who drinks with her. It is full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So this is her contamination that God sees. And then again from divine viewpoint in verse 5, she has a name, a name that is written conspicuously on her forehead. So if you had God's view, if you had, if you had God's eyes, this is what you would see. This is Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, I just need to point out very quickly 
that the word mystery looks as if it's part of that first title. And in some versions, like the one uh, I'm reading from, it says on her forehead, a name was written, and then mystery looks like the first word in the name, but that isn't the case. On her forehead, a name was written, and the name itself was a mystery, meaning that it was something God had kept to himself until he was ready to reveal the name of this entity, which he does right here. Now, that means that ever since the first century in John's time, it shouldn't be a mystery to anyone as to what to call this thing being revealed. For nearly 2,000 years, the people of God should be able to rightly call it what it is. Let's just look at that name a little more closely. This name identifies the harlot geographically for the first time. Now, I've been taking that location for granted. I've referred to it several times already, and you can find it earlier in the book of Revelation. But now let's take note of the location that is included in the name itself. She has a name written, which was once a mystery, but it's now revealed. And it's associated geographically with Babylon. What Babylon? Well, I want to pause on that for a moment and just have you turn to Genesis 10, Genesis chapter 10. We cannot really begin to understand this without giving scripture a full hearing and letting it just reveal to us the background of that city and where it's located and, and how it's historically played a part in the affairs of God and his people. Now, obviously, when we turn back to the first book of the Bible, we're moving back in history. And in chapter 10, we are entering right after what great event that affected the whole earth. I'm sure you know that it's the worldwide flood. Of course, there was one man who survived that with his three sons. His name was Noah, and their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, Ham's lineage is now given from chapter 10, verse 6. Have a look at it. It says, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Hut, and Canaan. Now, uh, here in, in uh, verse 8, here's his eldest. Cush. Cush begot Nimrod. And now God will tell us something about this man. And by the way, as you go through this whole table of nations in chapter 10, there's many, many names, and most of them really give us no additional information. But on this occasion, God tells us these details that are related to Nimrod. It says, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, it's a common saying, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was these four cities located in the land of Shinar, which is a land that just follows down the Euphrates River. And the first of those four cities was called Babel. Now, I want to pause for a moment on that. The word Babel is a Hebrew rendering of an ancient Sumerian term. If you've ever studied the history of ancient Near Eastern people, you know the way before the nation of Babylon came into being, that whole area was inhabited by these Sumerians. And the ancient Sumerian word, of which Babel is the Hebrew rendition, meant gate of the gods. Now, that term is found in cuneiform inscriptions that have been uncovered by archaeologists who've located the sites of those ancient civilizations. Those inscriptions have been translated and printed in books today, and they make this connection with Babylon. Now, it is interesting that those same ancient records, many of which contain the mythology of those people, record that over 3,000 years before Christ, the founding of that city wasn't credited to a human being at all, right? I mean, Genesis credits Nimrod. But the writings of those ancient people actually credit a deity named Marduk. Marduk was the storm god. He was the patron deity of that site on the earth. So in Babylon mythology, Marduk became the protector of that site. He was the chief god of the pantheon of gods in ancient Sumeria. Uh, something like Zeus is in the pantheon of Greek gods. 
He actually protected the other lesser deities from a diabolical spirit that was named Tiamat. Uh, in fact, he crushed Tiamat, and as a result of that, he brought order or cosmos to all of the creation. In fact, he actually made part of the creation, it says, by stomping on Tiamat's body and flattening him out, and that became the earth. And then it says that Marduk began to spit, and that's how men and women were created. Now, of course, this is ancient mythology. These kinds of stories were being circulated in the time of Moses. You can compare that with what you have in the simple creation account in Genesis that Moses recorded. But nevertheless, this was the viewpoint of these ancient people. Now, you go to chapter 11, you will find there the second reference to Babel, the gate of the gods. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Think about that. All of these descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth all spoke the same language. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let, let, let's get a reputation, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they will begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Of course, now they can all communicate, and share their common viewpoint and objectives and uh you know be, uh, with the the sinful heart of man being what it is god knew what would come from that and so in verse seven come let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech so the lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, from these two passages, uh, we know that what apparently has happened is that Nimrod founded a city on this site, and he named it Babel, which is the Hebrew rendering of a term that means the gate of the gods, as I said earlier. Then later on in the course of human history, the people of the known world gathered themselves together there and made an effort to somehow establish solidarity with one another by commencing construction on a tower of titanic proportions. I mean, it was their intent to stretch this thing into the sky, and that would give them a reputation and really a rallying point for all humans on the earth. That's the account as given here. There's a reason why God tells us these things. In 1898, the German Oriental Society launched a full-scale exploration of the site of ancient Babylon. It was funded by Kaiser Wilhelm II, and it lasted for 18 years. They dug down through various levels of civilization, and they discovered a number of levels that could be clearly identified. One of them was the Greek level of occupation. They dug a little further, and underneath that, they found a Persian level of occupation. They dug a little further, and underneath that, a Babylonian level of occupation emerged from the time of Daniel. Underneath that, there was an Assyrian level. And it was just like the Bible records, in terms of the civilizations that occupied that site, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And underneath the Assyrian level, they went all the way down to about 12 meters below the surface and found evidence of the first occupation on that site. And they knew it was the first level because they actually hit the water table and their pit filled up with water. They knew they were down at bedrock. Right down there, they discovered the remains of a great tower with inscriptions dedicated 
or dedicating it to Marduk. Now, since that time, there's only been a little more excavation on that site, but Saddam Hussein, when he was alive, identified himself with Nebuchadnezzar the king during the Babylonian occupation, and he began rebuilding ancient Babylon. Uh, if you go online, you can see all of his efforts on the site to this day. There's pictures of them. Uh, of course, it all stopped when he died, but Iraq still has plans to complete the works and revive Babylon as a cultural center. And they estimate that 95% of ancient Babylon is still hidden in the ground. But it is interesting that the ancient site today still has the evidence of what they call a great ziggurat or a great tower. They estimate that this tower had seven levels to it. And those levels would have structurally supported something as high, they say, as 100 meters into the sky. Now, 100 meters is not that high in terms of today's tallest buildings. But if you've seen St. Paul's Cathedral, for example, the one with that great big dome on top in London, 100 meters is about the height of that dome. And we consider that to be a monumental edifice in history. While these ancient people were building something with that height thousands of years before St. Paul's was built, and they called that site and that temple translated from ancient Sumerian, this is what they called it, the foundation of heaven on earth. So I think it's amazing that the book of Genesis records the founding of that city, and then it tells us what the intent of the people was when it came to that tower. Building of an edifice like this at the, the gate of the gods would have been for them the foundation of heaven on earth. Genesis says they wanted a tower whose top was in the heavens, and in their own words, they called it the foundation of heaven on earth. Now, we've taken uh, just a little time in these two chapters from Genesis because in both cases, you have the term Babel. In chapter 10, it's the beginning of a kingdom under Nimrod. And again, in chapter 11, verse 9, it's connected with God's act of confusing the languages of these people. Verse 9 says, therefore, its name was called Babel. It's not exactly clear who called it Babel, whether it was divinely named at that point or the people themselves called it Babel. But it was called Babel. And it says, because there the Lord confused the language. And what's interesting is that the term Babel is also very close, uh, closely connected for the term for languages. So let's call this Babel, a term connected to the term for language. Uh, there's a little play on, on words there. Now, these are the only two times in all the Bible where this Hebrew term is translated as Babel, and yet the term occurs nearly 300 more times in the Old Testament. See, it's never translated as Babel again, but it is translated every other time as Babylon. And I think we should be able to deduce several things from that. One is the fact that this is a subject that the Bible talks about a lot. I mean, hundreds of times. And second, when the scripture deals with it so extensively, it's giving us the record of a city and its influence especially over the people of God. <clears throat> I mean, the next time you see any reference to this city and this site in historical books, it's when God is judging Israel through the people of that city. And then when you come to the prophetic books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, God actually projects far ahead and he talks about the destruction of that city and those people. And it's also remarkable in Daniel 9 and also uh, uh, Daniel 3 and 4 that in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw the great image having a head of gold and a chest of arms and silver and a belly of bronze and legs of iron, and uh, finally you remember uh, those toes of iron and clay, God says to him, Nebuchadnezzar, that you and your kingdom of Babylon are the head of gold, and then there'll be these lesser kingdoms after yours such as Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, and then finally these toes of clay and iron. And in the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom of his own that's going to destroy the whole image. So it's interesting that this ancient kingdom called the Gate of the Gods 
located in that part of the world where people first gathered in uh, solidarity and where God scattered them. We don't know everything that was involved in his scattering, but no doubt God was dividing the human race, uh, not just linguistically, but nationally and racially. And that the descendants of those people in that site becomes uh, this figure in Daniel for the head of a long dynasty of Gentile nations who are prominent in bringing judgment to Israel and even removing her from the land. Remember that the Babylonians took Judah and Jerusalem captive. And then finally, one of those kingdoms in the image brings those people back to the land, the Medo-Persian kingdom. And now, in the events of the 70th week of Daniel, or in the last seven years of human history as we know it, the tribulation period, God finally judges something that's called Babylon the Great. So we have this entity, this woman, this, this great city identified geographically. I've given you a lot of information there, but just keep in mind that whatever Babylon the Great is, it can be identified with that ancient city where people gathered and built a religious tower in the name of a pagan deity, where later on it became the prominent Gentile power in a long succession of kingdoms that really until 1948 have continued to have complete domination over the promised land, but that one day will be judged in the tribulation. Now, secondly, go back with me to Revelation 17:5 and look at that name again. It identifies that woman not only in terms of some association with a geographical site. But it also identifies her morally, because it says she's a harlot, and we've noted that already. But then thirdly, it identifies her historically. Let me show you how. You notice that she's not just any harlot. She is the mother of them. That means she's not merely an unclean woman, but she is the source. The right word for that would be she is the progenitress. She is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And we're going to come back to that in just a moment. So again, we're just trying to see this entity from divine viewpoint. All right, whatever it is, if you and I just looked at it without any biblical revelation, we would say, man, what cargo, what opportunity, how beautiful, how enjoyable, what luxury. But if you look at it through the prophetic vision here, you're seeing something associated with the beast. You're seeing something associated with ancient Babylon. You're seeing something that is not only unclean, but the source of all of it, all uncleanness. And that brings us to the way she is found in verse 6, which is a relational identification with the people of God. If you have any question about how you are supposed to feel about this thing, notice in verse 6 that in terms of her relationships to God's own people, she is identified by her persecutions. She has a bloodlust for the saints. She's literally drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs, or literally the witnesses of Jesus. That is language referring to a lust for violence, for immense slaughter. To be drunken with it is to be intoxicated with it. To have uh, the maddening effects in yourself of being thrilled with the violent taking of the lives of others. This is Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the final solution in World War II. This is Joseph Mengele, who famously experimented on Holocaust victims with the most horrendous methods and murdered many children without remorse. This is Adolf Hitler, who brutally issued decrees for the massacre of millions without batting an eye. This is bloodlust. Now, it's no wonder then that the scripture says at the end of verse 6, that when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And you're probably marveling as well. So let's move now into verses 7 and following and the explanation for this. All right, We have the sight before our eyes. We have a little bit of the connections, but how are we to understand all of this? 
but let's just break it down for a moment. First of all, what we have in the explanation is an interpretation, but you'll notice it's not of the woman, it's of the beast. Verse 8 talks about the beast or her associate, and that section goes all the way down to verse 14. Then from verse 15, you have the relationship of this woman to the beast. It talks about the waters which you saw and the ten horns which you saw and so on, and it really continues with an emphasis on the beast. But now it's the relationship of the woman to the beast. So we really don't get any detailed explanation about the woman herself. And yet whatever explanation we are given, I think is surely intended by God to lead us to have some conclusions about that woman. In other words, from God's viewpoint, when he tells us about the beast and about the connections of that woman with the beast, we are supposed to arrive at a certain conclusion about her. And if you doubt that, then just listen to the howling of the people in chapter 18 and what conclusion they come to when God judges Babylon the Great. And I think you'll get the picture. Now, before we actually look at that explanation in detail, which we'll get to a little bit more fully next time, I want to sort through the various interpretations of this, uh, of this woman and here is really where you get to measure what you think by what other people think. And basically, you can simplify nearly every viewpoint of this into two categories. Okay? Either what you're looking at is an actual city. And it is referred to six times in these chapters as a city. So you're looking at an actual, literal, historical city. Or you're looking at a system. And I say either or, but most interpreters actually believe it's some combination of the two. So if you're thinking this is a city, what are your options? Well, some people state they believe, they attempt to prove that we're talking about a future commercial center, something like London or New York City. <laughs> you have a few commentators who believe that uh, Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. There are many who believe that it's ancient Babylon restored. don't know if you've read any of the uh, Left Behind series, but Tim LaHaye, who's one of the authors of that series, writes, the city of Babylon must be rebuilt and become the financial capital of the world. He's taking that from chapter 18 and everything that it says about it being a commercial center. And then he goes on to suggest that in the future, the United Nations will locate its headquarters in current ancient Babylon, and they will fund the reconstruction of its building by levying a tax on financial transactions on oil and airport landing fees and much, much more. That's, that's just his view. But even a really good commentator like Robert Thomas, uh, who's written two volumes on the book of Revelation, is probably the best commentary out there for those who are pre-mill. Thomas teaches at the Master's Seminary, by the way, and he writes, the best solution is to assign Babylon its literal significance of the city on the Euphrates by that name. So that is a very common viewpoint, as unlikely as it may seem to some of us. But the idea is that in the future, somehow, the center of the world's commerce will be relocated to Babylon, sitting on the site of that ancient city. And quite honestly, in light of what Saddam Hussein has done, and what the United Nations are planning to do there, you can see some connection uh, with that view. But of course, the most commonly held view historically is that this city is what city? Rome. Uh, Tertullian, the second century church father, is the first one who seems to have used the word Babylon in his writing to early Christians as a cryptic reference to Rome unless Peter does that in his second epistle. But there are many who believe that it is Rome. But in any case, most people who believe it is a literal city will also hold to the view that it is simultaneously a system, which is located in whatever geographical site that they name. So what are the systems that people propose? Well, if you believe that the city is Rome, then you must believe that the system is Catholicism. That 
was the view of the reformers. In fact, there are many commentaries that almost give no effort to defend that view, but just take it for granted that you accept this and you believe that this is wrong. Uh, Schofield does this, by the way, in his reference Bible. There are others who hold that it's more than just Roman Catholicism, but it actually may embrace Catholicism and all of apostate Christianity. Uh, Charles Ryrie, for example, writes, it is hard to escape the conclusion that the Roman church is the harlot, but this is not the whole picture, for the apostate church is not merely the Roman church. It will include other groups in family relationship with their mother. Now, don't be confused by all of this, but let's just sort through it in, uh, for just a moment. Do you think that the harlot is London? What about New York? Well, you know, someone says, you know, they don't have enough perfume. It's got to be Paris. And you might laugh at that, but that's, that's why some people believe it's Paris, because of the reference to perfume in chapter 18. Maybe it's some commercial center that hasn't even been built yet. Is it Jerusalem? Is it literal Babylon on the Euphrates that will rise again from the archaeological remains? Is it Rome built on seven hills? And if it is one of those ancient cities, is it connected then to some religious system like Catholicism or apostate Christianity? Okay, that's what we're looking at. And that brings me now to our conclusion for today. And this really is just going to be my own personal observation so far. Because whatever Babylon the Great is, I think it has to be able to account for these following seven facts. You ready for these? Number one, whatever view you hold, you have to account for the fact that Babylon the Great is portrayed in these chapters as being ancient. It is old. Remember that verse 5 calls this entity the mother of harlots and abominations. And in addition to that, if you look at verses 9 and 10, where the angel interprets something about that beast, you may recall from a previous study that the beast had seven heads. And the angel explains that the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And in verse 10, they are also seven kings. Maybe you remember then that five of those kings have already fallen at the time John was writing. Five of those kings have come and gone. Uh, he says one of them now is at the time you're writing and one is yet to come. And when we dealt with uh, the whole issue of the beast, which we're going to fill out next time, uh, we discovered that the beast is both a historical entity that stretches all the way back to before the time of John, according to this, but then also culminates in one individual at the future tribulation. So that beast is both an institution and an individual, an ancient lineage reaching its apex in the man of sin. Well, the woman is sitting on the beast. So if five of those seven heads have already come and gone, I would draw the conclusion that in connection with her being called the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, that whatever there is, whatever she is, there is ancient time to her. Been around a long time. Number two, whatever the harlot is, you have to account for the fact that she is located universally. Look at verse 15. When the angel first introduced this to us in chapter one, it says that she sat on many waters. Well, in verse 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So you have to account for this fact that in some sense, she is everywhere in the earth. Number two. Number three, she is closely connected to, but clearly distinguishable from the governments of the earth. Let me say that again. She's closely connected to them, to the governments of the earth. Yet she is clearly distinguished from them. Why am I saying that? Because this beast on which she rides has seven heads, which are seven kings, and the beast has ten horns. And in verse 12, we are told that the ten horns are ten more kings. But clearly, we discovered in another message, the beast has something to do with the government and the rulers of the earth 
And this woman is connected with that in some way. In fact, we saw that right away, that she's associated with the beast in verse 3, because she's sitting on it, and it's made up of these rulers. But she's definitely connected with them, and yet you can distinguish her from them. So number four, that leads almost all interpreters to believe that this woman is religious. She must be a religious entity. In other words, uh, you're not merely dealing here with something that is secular, like a king or a world ruler that buys and sells and makes profit, as portrayed in chapter 18, but there is some religious side to her complexity. And number five, whatever you think Babylon the Great is, even though she is religious, she is evidently conspicuous for her bloodthirsty persecution of the true children of God. This is some entity that is connected with religion, yes, distinguishable from human government while still connected to it, and ancient and universal and conspicuous throughout history for her bloodthirsty persecution of the children of God. In fact, look at chapter 18, verse 24, and you'll see why I'm saying she's ancient and conspicuous for this, because it says right there, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So she is no new entity that just emerges during the tribulation. And then number six, you also have to account for the fact that by the time of the tribulation, at least, the harlot will be centered in a particular city. There's no question about that, because six times in these chapters, she's called a city. And if you look at chapter 18, verse 10, she has to be centralized in her influence in a particular city, because it says that the kings of the earth are standing at a distance for fear of her torment saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Notice they're standing at a distance. In other words, even though we found out that there is some universal dimension to her, she is nevertheless a definite location during the tribulation because you can stand at a distance while watching her being judged. And this verse also calls her a city. You have it again in verse 18. They cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? In other words, they're comparing her to other cities. So I do think you have to account for this, that by the time of the tribulation, at least, this harlot will become centered in a particular city. And then lastly, number seven, look at verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. You have to account for the fact that as a city, she will dominate the world's governments. So let's just go through those seven facts again. Whatever your conclusion is going to be about Babylon the Great, I think you have to take these facts into account. Number one, in terms of chronology, she is ancient. Number two, in terms of influence or where you find her, she sits everywhere. She's universally involved. The peoples, in the languages, in the nations of the earth. Number three, although she's closely connected to human government, she can be clearly distinguished from it. She is an individual entity. Number four, that leads you to believe that she must have a religious dimension to her. Number five, even though she's religious, don't be fooled by her appearances because she is conspicuous for her bloodthirsty persecution of God's people. And this has been historically the case with her. Number six, by the time of the tribulation, she'll be centered in an identifiable city that people can stand away from and watch while she burns, and they can compare her to other cities. And lastly, chapter uh, number seven, as a city, she will dominate the world's governments. Now, I think those things are clearly revealed, and there may be others as well, but my plan is to finish chapter 17 next time, and I think we can do that uh, if we just remember the background that we've gone through so far. But I'd like to conclude the message in this way. <coughs> when I was preparing this message, I pulled up a website 
that has a 24 hour a day camera showing the Wailing Wall at Jerusalem. So I saw all of those Orthodox Jews in the evening singing and praying and dancing at the wall. So I gave a little attention to the date in the Jewish calendar and discovered that at the time it was actually Rosh Hashanah or the Jewish New Year. Rosh Hashanah is also known as the Day of Judgment. And the Talmud teaches that three books of account are opened. One book is the Book of Life. The Book of Life records the righteous who are sealed to live for the next 12 months. Another book gives the fate of the wicked who are blotted out of the Book of Life and they will die. And then there's an intermediate class of people who are given 10 days until Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, they're given 10 days to repent and become righteous. Now, those Jews don't realize the significance of that in light of their true Messiah, and yet they passionately believe that judgment is coming for the wicked, and that life is offered to the righteous, and that God is merciful to those who repent. So do you believe that? You believe your Bible and what ancient prophecies foretell, that judgment is coming. And do you believe that the righteous will be caught up to be with the Messiah in a life of eternal bliss? And do you believe that all of humanity is given time in this day, not just for 10 days, but for at least another seven years if the Lord comes today, but all of humanity is given time by the mercy of God to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And do you believe what we're studying about in the great tribulation, when there'll be a temple, someone called the man of sin will sit in it. He will display himself as God. He'll set up what he calls the abomination of desolation. And do you believe that outside that temple, there are going to be two witnesses who, who are going to be given supernatural powers to overthrow and incinerate their enemies for three and a half years. And do you believe that when all of this comes to a conclusion and winds down, there will be an entity that has set itself up in opposition to God since ancient times and from divine viewpoint, it is the mother of all the abominations and harlotries of the world and so God is going to deal with it decisively. And when he does, heaven is going to sing. Rejoice. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And following that, the heavens are going to divide right out of the sky. The Messiah is going to come down. Do you believe that? I believe that. Therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, Peter writes, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy, in all holy conduct and godliness? Let's bow for prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the revelation of these things. And Father, although we are curious to know what they mean and what will happen in the future, Father, you have given this to us so that we might take a stand in this life and exercise holiness and righteousness, that we might be blameless. Father, I pray that you would help us to stand firm, help us to do our best in this day and age to bring many people into the kingdom before it becomes too late. And Father, we will give you the praise for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.